you're listening to the Science of Everything podcast, episode 53, Sound and Music, and I'm your host, James Fodor. In this episode, we're going to look at sound and music, and particularly the physics of sound, uh, looking at the speed of sound, fundamental frequencies, standing waves, talk about harmonics, and then apply this to some interesting sound phenomena, for example, sonic booms and the Doppler effect. And then we'll apply this basic knowledge also to uh, gain a better understanding of music, including what music is, the different aspects of music. We'll talk about beats and rhythm and timbre and things like that. Also, we'll look at some of the uh, major classes of musical instruments and talk a little bit about how those work and how they differ from one another. Recommended pre-listening for this episode is episode 24, Vibrations and Waves, which will provide some of the background necessary to understand particularly the the basic physics of sound. So, without further ado, let's get started. Let's start by talking about the nature of sound. What is sound? Basically, the crucial thing to understand about sound is that sound is, well, it's a perception, so it's ultimately a construction of the brain. But in terms of the physical basis of sound, it is merely variations in air pressure caused by vibrations of air molecules. That's fundamentally what sound is, vibrations of air molecules and resulting changes in air pressure. And so everything that we hear in music, voices, other sounds, everything, is just different patterns of variations in in air pressure and different combinations of uh, of those patterns of variation at different speeds and times and frequencies and so on. But, But fundamentally, that's all it is, variations in air pressure in differing patterns. So, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Oh, oh, wait, you want some more information? Okay, well, maybe we'll give a few more details than just that. So, it is true that sound is essentially just variations in air pressure, but there is a lot more to say about it than just that. Specifically, what do we mean by variations in air pressure? Well, when an object vibrates, what happens is that it's moving backwards and forwards very rapidly. Think about a tuning fork, which is just a basically a Y-shaped piece of metal that, that you can pull back and cause it to vibrate on on the spot, and it produces a single tone of a given frequency. As the piece of metal in the tuning fork pushes outwards, it pushes air away, creating a compression, a wave crest. As it vibrates backwards in the other direction, it creates a partial void of air, which is called a rare refraction, corresponding to a wave trough. And so compressions are segments or sections of relatively high air pressure, rare refractions are areas of relatively low air pressure. And so as the tuning fork pushes outwards and inwards again, you get this alternating sequence of compressions and rarefactions, or in other words, alternating sequence of high and low air pressures. And as the air molecules are rushing backwards and forwards uh, to to move away from the areas of high pressure into the areas of low pressure, we have uh, a regular pattern of sound which, which which we can perceive with our ears. So that's the basic nature of sound, compressions and rarefactions caused by vibrating objects. Those objects can include, say, a tuning fork, or they can include strings in instruments, or they can include our vocal cords. Many of the things that vibrate and produce sounds are actually strings of various forms, and we'll talk a bit more about that later when we get into musical instruments. But, for example, our voices are fundamentally just strings which can vibrate at different frequencies there by producing sound that we can hear. Now, the speed of sound. How fast does sound travel? Well, most people, I think, know that the speed of sound is a lot slower than the speed of light, the speed of sound is about 340 meters per second in air at room temperature. Interestingly, the speed of sound does not depend on air pressure. So the speed of sound is the same at sea level as it is at higher altitudes. Well, it actually isn't because the speed of sound does depre- depend on 
air temperatures. And, of course, it's colder at higher altitudes. And so the speed of sound does decrease as you move higher above the surface of the Earth. But it's not because of the lower pressure. It's purely because of the lower temperature. So the reason the speed of sound does not depend on air pressure is because if you have a higher pressure gas, so a higher density of particles, each particle has a smaller distance to vibrate or to travel through before it will collide with a neighboring particle. However, there are also more particles that the energy must pass through because you've got a higher pressure. So, so these two factors, it will exactly cancel each other out. So basically, the total rate of progression of the air vibrations is exactly the same, regardless of what the density or the pressure of the air is. It does depend on air, uh, the, the speed of sound does depend on air temperature though, because with higher temperatures, the air molecules are moving more rapidly. They're vibrating around more quickly. We've talked about that in previous episodes on gases. And therefore, the air vibrations or the, the differences in air pressure can be transmitted more rapidly. Sound travels more quickly at higher air temperatures. It also travels more quickly in gases with lighter molecules. Now, this is why if you inhale helium, your voice becomes high-pitched. That's occurring because the speed of sound is increasing in helium relative to air because helium is lighter than air. Therefore, the molecules of helium can vibrate more rapidly or move more rapidly with a given amount of energy because they're smaller and so they don't require as much energy to move. Conversely, if you inhale gases like, I think it's sodium hexafluoride or something like that, which is the one that makes your voice go really deep. It's because of the exact, it's having the exact opposite effect. The speed of sound is reduced relative to the, the speed of sound in normal air because those molecules are much heavier and therefore take more energy to move them. And therefore a given amount of energy input uh, into, into the system won't be able to move the molecules as much. And so therefore you have a slower rate of propagation of the vibrations and therefore sound travels slower and also at a lower frequency which is why your voice sounds lower. So there's actually two effects there, the change in the frequency and the change in the speed of, of air, but, but they're both a product of the size and weight or, or mass of the, the molecules, be it the helium or the air. Another important concept to understand about sound is that of fundamental frequency. To understand fundamental frequency, you have to understand the concept of a standing wave. Now, I talked about standing waves back in episode 24, and if you're not really familiar with what those are, I'd recommend going back and listening to that. I'll briefly review it here, but it's a little if it's a concept that you haven't encountered before, it can be a little bit tricky to get your head around. The basic idea of a standing wave is that it's a wave, so it's 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 some sort of moving variation of, of something, some medium, but it's a wave that's stationary in position. So a, a classic example of a standing wave is like a, a, a skipping rope moving up and down. The rope the bits of the rope are moving, but the rope itself doesn't move from one place to another. So the the rope stays still, parts of it move around, and so you, you have variation in... You can have energy transmission, or really energy storage, in standing waves without actual movement of the energy over space. Again, if that's unclear, go back to episode 24 where I talk more about what standing waves are and how they work. But think of a skipping rope going up and down without actually moving over space. That's the basic idea of a standing wave. Now, much sound that we produce, particularly in musical instruments and also um, vocal sounds are the result of standing wave patterns. So a standing wave will occur, for, will be produced, for example, if you pluck a string which is fixed at at least one end and then allow the wave to reflect back and interfere with itself, you'll you get a standing wave pattern. Now, the fundamental frequency corresponds to the longest possible wavelength that a given string can support. And this will be equal to twice the length of the string. It's twice the length of the string because you can have a node at both ends and therefore you'll have half a period 
stretching across from one end of the string to the other, from one note to the next. That's half a period. Remember, a period has to go up and then come back down, and then go down and come back up again. That's a full period. So the fundamental frequency corresponds to sorry, the fundamental frequency corresponds to a wavelength that is twice the length of the string. So if you have a pipe or a string or something like that, because you can have a standing wave in a pipe as well, it doesn't have to be a string, you can change that by either changing the length of the pipe or changing the length of the string, or by changing the speed at which waves travel through the pipe or the string. Uh, th this latter possibility, changing the speed of wave travel, can be achieved by changing the gas. Again, as we've just discussed before, you can replace air, with, which is mostly oxygen and nitrogen, with a lighter gas, such as helium. And in lighter gases, as we've said, waves travel faster, and therefore you have a higher fundamental frequency. Heavier gases, waves travel slower, and therefore you have a lower fundamental frequency. So now that we understand what the fundamental frequency is, we can talk about harmonics. Harmonics is probably a word you've heard before, or another equivalent well, mostly equivalent concept is that of a reson resonant frequencies. Th these terms are sort of thrown around a bit in the media or in television and things like that, but often not used uh, very carefully. To understand what resonant frequencies are or what harmonics are, we need to know what the fundamental frequency is. So the fundamental frequency, again, as we've said, is the frequency of vibration that corresponds to the longest possible wavelength that a given vibrating string or pipe or something like that can support. And again, th this longest wavelength will be equal to twice the length of the pipe or the string if it's confined at both ends. So if you have a string pinned down at both ends, the fundamental frequency will correspond to a wavelength twice the length of that string. Now, what about the harmonics? Well, harmonics are simply uh, frequencies, resonant frequencies, that lead to stable self-reinforcing standing wave patterns that have smaller frequencies than the fundamental frequency. So let's break that down a bit. Let's imagine that I have a string that's fixed at both ends and I, I pull the string down and cause it to vibrate and I get a nice standing wave pattern. There's a wave traveling back and forth across the string, uh, therefore leading the string to move up and down in, in a certain pattern. And the, the frequency of this wave, of this standing wave, will be, I'm assuming that this is the fundamental frequency, so the frequency corresponds to a wavelength of twice the length of this string. Now, what if I want to have other frequencies in this wave as well? There's various reasons you'd want to do that, which I'll talk about in a little bit. But suppose I wanted to have different frequencies. How could I do that? Well, one question is, could I have any lower frequencies? That is, frequencies corresponding to longer wavelengths. The answer is no, because remember, the fundamental frequency is defined to be precisely that, uh, to be the lowest frequency possible. If you wanted to have a lower frequency, you'd have to increase the length of the string or length of the pipe or whatever. Or, or of course, change the speed of the uh, of the medium through, through which the vibrations are occurring. But let's assume we can't do either of those things. So we can't have any longer frequencies because basically the string is too short to allow that. However, can uh, there's another question. Can we have any shorter wavelengths or can we have any lower frequencies? The answer is yes, but we can't just have any old frequency that we like. So for example, suppose that we have a fundamental frequency, uh, a fundamental frequency corresponding to a wavelength of, I don't know, 10 meters. We can have higher frequencies than that corresponding to uh, shorter wavelengths but we can't just have any old wavelength that we like. We can't have a wavelength of, say, 8.5, because that will not correspond to a nice, uh, stable, self-reinforcing standing wave. Standing waves are only possible uh, at certain lengths. So, for example, if you had a fundamental frequency corresponding to a wavelength of 10 meters, that means your string is 5 meters long, remember? Half the, half the fundamental wavelength. You could have a wavelength producing a standing wave of half of that, of 2.5 metres, or half of that again, 1.25 metres. You can keep halving. 
that's fine because those will produce consistent uh, self-reinforcing standing wave patterns. So, for example, instead of having um, instead of having nodes at each end of the string and an anti-node in the middle, anti-node remember being the the place where the string moves from its maximum to its minimum uh, extensions, and nodes being points where the string doesn't move. So you've got uh, in our imaginary example with a string fixed at both ends, you've got node at one end, anti-node in the middle, and a node at the other end. You can also have a standing wave, so, so that's the fundamental frequency, the, the longest possible uh, wavelength that we can have. We can also have a different pattern where we have a node at one end and a node at the other end, and also a node in the middle, and two anti-nodes, one in between the, the first node and the middle node, and one between the middle node and the final node. So in this case we have three nodes and two anti-nodes instead of just two nodes and one anti-node in the fundamental frequency case. And you can keep you can keep expanding that. You can have, instead of just you can go two nodes, which is our fundamental, or you could have three nodes, which was our second case, or you could have four nodes, five nodes. You can keep going and increasing the number of nodes you have. Each time you'll be reducing the wavelength of your standing wave, and therefore increasing the number of sort of up and down cycles that you have along your standing wave pattern. And also you'll therefore be increasing the frequency of your standing wave. But you can only do this in whole number multiples of your fundamental frequency. So you can have a frequency that's double your fundamental frequency or three times your fundamental frequency, but you can't have it at 2.6 times or 7.8 times. Those will not produce, uh, those length relationships or those frequency relationships will not produce consistent self-reinforcing standing wave patterns. It's quite difficult to explain this, as I often say, without the aid of diagrams. So if you're finding this difficult to understand, try just Googling standing wave or harmonic frequencies or something like that. I'll also post some of these up on the Facebook page to make it a bit clearer. But again, strongly recommend that you listen to episode 24 where I talk about standing waves in a bit more detail so you can get an idea of how that how all that works. But the basic idea, again, is simply that harmonics are the resonant frequencies or the, the frequencies that you can have producing standing waves, so self-consistent waves, that can maintain themselves uh, for a string or other confined vibrating structure of a given length. So again, if I had a 10 meter, sorry, if I had a 5 meter long string, my fundamental wavelength is 10 meters, again, twice the length of the string. I could then have fundamental frequency, uh, sorry, I could then have resonant frequencies corresponding to my fundamental wavelength of, of 10 meters of half that, 5 meters, half that again, 2.5 meters, half that again, 1.25 meters, and so on and so on. I can keep having smaller and smaller uh, resonant frequencies. These are my harmonics. Each one of these is a harmonic. So there's your first harmonic and your second resonant harmonic and your third harmonic and so on. And there's, there's, there's no limit to the number you can have, but there, there are only discrete numbers that you can have. You can't, there's no one and a half resonant frequency or one and a half harmonic. Doesn't make sense. It won't produce a consistent standing wave. If you try to have a standing wave pattern like that, what would happen is that the wave would not interfere with itself in a consistent way, it would interfere with itself in an inconsistent way as it reflected back from one side of your confined space to another, and it would interfere with itself, cancel itself out, and basically you would just get you would just get nonsense. You, you would just get chaos and it would cancel out to zero. This is like when you're skipping with a skipping rope, you have to put the energy in at the right periods of time. You can't just sort of waggle it randomly, wiggle it randomly. You won't get a nice uh, a standing wave, you won't get a nice skipping pattern with a skipping rope if you just uh, wiggle it around randomly. Same with a, a swing. You can't just push at random times on a swing. You have to push it at just the right times. You don't have to push the swing every time that it swings back in your direction. You can push it every second time or every third time or every tenth time. But if you start trying to push it every 1.7th time, so you're pushing it when the swings hasn't actually come all the way back to you, yet you're pushing it sometime in the middle, you'll just get chaos. The swing will bounce around and it will go all over the place. You won't get a nice swinging pattern. 
So in order to have nice self-consistent waves, you need to have whole number multiples of your fundamental frequency. And these whole number multiples are called resonant frequencies or harmonics. The harmonics differ depending on whether you have a string or a, pi a pipe or anything that's confined at one end only and then open at the other one, or confined at both ends. So, so these these different types of standing waves have slightly different. Well, they have different harmonics. They have uh, different patterns, even and odd. But we won't get into the details of that. Suffice it to say, they both have harmonics, and they both have to be whole number multiples of your fundamental frequency. So. Hopefully that was relatively clear. It's a little bit complicated. We'll, this is important, though, because we'll come back to talking about harmonics when we get to talking about music and the different types of musical instruments and how we play different notes. Before we get to that, though, there's a few more basic concepts of sound that we need to cover. Now, I've been talking about harmonics and different frequencies. I, I suppose I should make one thing clear now, which I've sort of hinted at, but the, the frequency of vibrations of those air molecules or, you know, of, of the harmonics that you have that corresponds directly to the pitch of sound that we hear. So high pitch corresponds to a high frequency and therefore a small wavelength. Low pitch corresponds to a low frequency and a long wavelength. So if I talk in a low voice like this, what I'm doing is I'm vibrating my vocal cords with a very, sorry, a very low fundamental frequency and therefore a long wavelength. And we perceive that we perceive that type of vibration as having a, a low pitch. Similarly, if I talk in a high voice like this, which I can't do very well, what I'm doing is vibrating my vocal cords with a much smaller wavelength and therefore a lower frequency, and therefore that's perceived as a higher pitch. And again, we'll get back to that when we talk more about music. But there are some other properties of sound that are relevant apart from just frequency and harmonics, which we've been mostly talking about so far. And another one is loudness. So this one's a bit more intuitive. Loudness basically just refers to how intense the sound is, and it corresponds to how far away from their equilibrium position air molecules are being vibrated as the energy passes through them. So, for example, if I, I don't know, if I tap my desk softly, I don't know if you can hear that, but if I make a soft tapping, that produces a sound. You can hear that. But because I'm not imparting very much energy into that, into those air molecules as they're vibrating, the air molecules don't vibrate very far away from their equilibrium positions. They only vibrate a little bit, basically. And therefore, they don't displace very much air. There's not much of a change in air pressure. And we perceive that as a fairly soft sound. On the other hand, if I make a very uh, loud banging, if I put lots of energy uh, in, into producing the vibration, then what I'm doing is I'm causing the air molecules to vibrate more away from their equilibrium position. They're vibrating more. You're having larger variations in air pressure. We perceive that as a louder sound. Now, it's important to understand that this is loudness has nothing to do with the frequency of the sound. You can have loud, high frequency, loud, low frequency, and, and so on. Loud, high frequency, loud, soft, high frequency. They're completely different from each other. The frequency has to do with the frequency of vibration of the air molecules. There's really no other way of saying that. Loudness has to do with basically the amplitude of vibration of the air molecules. And if you remember from vibrations and waves, amplitude and frequency are completely different from each other. Amplitude is how far away you move. Uh, frequency is how often you repeat a, a given motion. So they're completely different things. As you're probably familiar with, uh, the loudness or volume of sound is uh, typically measured in decibels. Now, decibels are actually a logarithmic system. So that means if you increase from 80 decibels to 90 decibels, that actually corresponds to a tenfold increase in intensity of the sound. But 
de- decibels are a bit confusing, not, not, not only because they're a logarithmic system in this way, but because also the decibels measure, what they measure directly is the actual energy in the sound, so the, the actual vibrational energy. Now, higher vibrational energies correspond to louder sounds, but the relationship is, is a very complicated one. So, so it's not necessarily the case, in fact, it definitely is not the case, that a sound that has 10 times as much energy, so therefore is 10 decibels higher, sounds 10 times louder to you. The relationship is very complicated, and um, psychoacousticians have spent a lot of time studying this about, you know, about equal perceived loudness curves, and it actually depends on the frequency and lots of other things. So when I said there's no relationship between loudness and frequency, that's true from a physics standpoint, but it's not quite true from a psychological standpoint, because the way we perceive sound does depend on the frequency. So, uh, you know... Uh, 50 decibel sound at 100 hertz won't necessarily sound as loud as a 50 decibel sound at 2000 hertz because we perceive different frequencies of sound differentially well and different people of course will uh, will differ in this as well by the way frequency is measured in hertz i think i would have discussed that in episode 24 which is just the number of vibrations per second so 1 hertz is 1 vibration per second human ears are sensitive to sounds between roughly 20 and 20,000 hertz. So that's between 20 hertz and 20 kilohertz. Sounds that are above this threshold, that is, with a high frequency, are referred to as ultrasonic. Sounds that have a lower frequency than, than 20 hertz are referred to as infrasound. You might have heard those terms before, ultrasound and infrasound, because they use, for example, ultrasound is used in medical applications for imaging. So, in some sense, it's a little bit strange when we think about ultrasound producing a visual image, because what we're actually doing is transforming vibrations of air molecules into a visual image, which we can then see. Normally, what the way our normal sensory apparatus works is that we trans we transform vibrations of air molecules into sounds, which we hear, but there's no reason you can't transform it into a, a visual image as well. In fact, this is what I'm doing right now, as I'm recording this podcast on Audacity. I have a visual representation of the, the volume, at least, that there's there's no representation of pitch, but there is a representation of the volume of sounds that I'm producing in terms of the height of this uh, little graph thing that's going up and down. That's just a different way of basically perceiving the physics which is going on. The physics is just changes in air pressure of varying intensities. Our ears and brains perceive that as sound, but we could use, say, an ultrasound and perceive that as, a, as an image or as all sorts of other forms. You could even... And as everyone knows, different animals have different sensitivity ranges for for different frequencies. So bats, for example, can hear much higher frequencies than we can, and they use that for echolocation. Uh, it's also Everyone also probably knows that dogs can hear whistles that humans can't. That's because the whistles produce such high frequencies that humans can't hear them, but the dogs can. So this is all just simply about the sensitivity to different frequencies of sound. And again, that's that's coming back to fundamentally what frequencies the the organs in our ear can resonate with. Okay, there's just a couple more effects that I want to talk about before we move on to talking about music. Uh, These are sonic booms and the Doppler effect, which are two things you may have heard of before. Sonic booms occur when objects travel in uh, travel faster than the speed of sound, or specifically when objects travel when objects in a given medium travel faster than the speed of sound in that medium. So you can have sonic booms in water as well. We we don't usually call them that, but but that's what they are. A sonic boom is just a shock wave. It's produced, as I said, when an object travels in air faster than the movement of sound in air itself. Now, again, it's very hard to describe how this works without a diagram. I'll, I'll make an attempt, though, and we'll see how su- successful it is. As an object travels faster, the crests of each wave pulse of sound that that 
object produced, say an airplane, it's producing sounds as it, as it moves from its engine, the crests of each of those wave pulses become bunched closer and closer together. Now, to see that, imagine that my aircraft... Let, let's instead think about it as ripples in a pond, because this is the same basic principle. Ripples in a pond are analogous to sound wave uh, pressure waves in, in air. If I just drop a bunch of stones into a pond at regular intervals, I'll have a series of ripples coming out from the spot where I'm dropping the, the stones, but there won't be any... There's no movement. I'm dropping them in the same spot. Now, suppose that I start moving the place, moving my hand across the surface of the pond and so that I'm dropping stones in at slightly different spots. What you'll see is that the the wave crests will move across the surface of the pond, of course, because I'm moving the, the place where I'm dropping uh, the stone in. The faster I move my hand, the more rapidly these wave pulses uh, move relative to, to one another. And now it turns out that as, as the speed of the object in the medium in which it's traveling increases, those wave crests begin to bunch up in the direction in which the object is traveling. So again, go back to our case of the aircraft traveling through air. The wave crests of the sound produced by its engines begin to bunch up near the nose or you know near the forward section of the aircraft. And this is because basically what's happening is the aircraft emits one pulse of sound at one period of time, imagine, and then at the next period of time it emits another pulse of sound. But in the intervening period, the aircraft has traveled forward. And so wave front traveling in the forwards direction from the initial wave produced by uh, wave of sound produced by the aircraft catches up to some extent to the wave front produced produced in the second period the reason is because of course the the aircraft is moving during that period of time so the fact that the aircraft is moving is what helps the second wave crest catch up to the first one the faster the aircraft is moving the more catch up the second wave front gets relative to the first one and if the wave sorry if the aircraft is moving sufficiently rapidly all of those wave fronts will bunch up right in front of the aircraft. If that wasn't very clear, and I don't think it was, because it's so hard to describe this without drawing a diagram, again, just just look up Sonic Boom on Google Images, and you'll hopefully see what I'm saying. It's probably even better to look at an animation, because it becomes immediately clear why the wave fronts, bu why the wave fronts bunch up if, a, if the object is traveling sufficiently fast. So it's very clear from an animation. Look look one up if, you, uh, if it's hard to see what I'm saying. But the basic point is that the object is trying to push air in front of it away at a rate faster than the air can, can get out of the way because the object is traveling, traveling faster than the speed of sound. So the air can't get away in time. So what happens? You get a very uh, substantial build-up in pressure in the form of a very high amplitude wave in front of the object. And as the object, say our aircraft, is traveling towards us, this high pressure, really high amplitude wavefront will, at some point, pass us by. So we'll, uh, we will hear this very high amplitude, very high pressure build-up of air as a very large sound, specifically as a sonic boom. There's actually another sonic boom which occurs at the tail of the aircraft for the exact opposite reason. At the front of the aircraft, the sonic boom occurs owing to the fact that it's pushing air out of the way faster than air can actually get out of the way. At the tail of the aircraft, the air is being moved away faster than the air can return to fill the space uh, produced by the, the aircraft. And so you have a similar effect of a very low pressure, um, very low amplitude wave uh, occurring at the tail of the aircraft. This, a sonic boom is actually not a static phenomenon, a phenomenon because this wall of very high pressure 
and, and very low pressure at the tail of the aircraft, travels along with the aircraft. So it's always there, so long as the aircraft is travelling faster than the speed of sound. It, it constantly travels along with the aircraft in an envelope, which, which we can call the, uh, the, the sonic cone. However, we, we don't hear it as a continual, as a continual noise. We just hear it as a boom, as a one-off thing. And the reason for that is because you will only be standing at the position of the aircraft's sonic cone at one point. In other words, the aircraft is travelling towards you, for a long time you're in front of the sonic cone, then at some point you're standing right in the sonic cone, that's when you hear the sonic boom, and then afterwards you're uh, behind the sonic cone as the aircraft flies on in further in front of you. So you, you will only hear the sonic boom once, as it intersects your position. If you were somehow able to travel along inside the sonic cone, then you would be able to hear it continually. It would just sound really, really loud continually, although I guess there'd be problems there because the the, the rate of the sound travelling towards you would, would be slower than the rate at which you were actually travelling. So there might be complexities there, but, but basically if you were able to travel along with the aircraft, you would hear a continual noise rather than just a one-off boom. But it's all it all has to do with the fact that the aircraft or other object is trying to push the air away from itself faster than the air can get away. And so the wave fronts all bunch up and produce a very high amplitude, high pressure, and therefore loud uh, sound that we can hear. And the exact same phenomenon is produced by boats that travel through water. You know those wakes, those sort of white wakes that they leave behind them? That's just the, that's basically the same thing as a sonic boom. It's just in water rather than air. The boat is travelling faster than the, than the wave speed of water waves in the water, and therefore you have this very high uh, high amplitude build-up of, of large waves, wave crests, or uh, that's left behind in the wake of the of of the craft. So those uh, wakes in water are exactly the same phenomenon as sonic booms in air. Final phenomenon that I want to talk about before moving on to music is the Doppler effect. The Doppler effect is uh, is a, is sort of similar to a sonic boom in the reason it's produced. It's again produced by when objects are moving towards us or away from us, and is caused by the fact that the apparent frequency of uh, a sound changes. So the Doppler effect occurs when you have an object which is producing a sound and is also moving radially relative to you. So that is radially meaning it's moving towards you or away from you. If an object's just moving sideways relative to you, that you won't have a Doppler effect. The Doppler effect itself is simply the fact that if an object is traveling towards you, the frequency of sound that it's producing is increased. So it, you hear a higher frequency than, than say, an observer who is traveling alongside the object would. Conversely, if the object's traveling away from you, then you hear a lower frequency than would an observer who's traveling along with the object. So a classic example here is the sound of an ambulance or a police car or something like that. As it's coming towards you, it, uh, it appears to have a higher pitch, and as it travels away from you, it appears to have a lower pitch. That's because of the Doppler effect. Uh, again, the, the physics behind that has to do with the fact that the wavelengths uh, the, the wave fronts are bunching up when the object is moving towards you, and they're spreading out when the object moves away from you. Bunching up corresponds to a reduction in frequency, and so you hear a higher-pitched sound. Spreading out of wave fronts corresponds to a lower frequency, and therefore you, you hear a, a lower pitch. If that's unclear, see a diagram or an animation to, to see how that works. Uh, radar, and also sonar in, in water, works by this principle. You reflect radio waves off a moving object, measure the time uh, to return, that tells you how far away the object is, and also measure how the frequency of the waves has changed, and that will tell you how fast the object is travelling. 
well, at least it will tell you the radial velocity of the object. It won't tell you its uh, velocity sort of sideways relative to you. So radar can tell you both the the distance away from you an object is and how fast it is traveling. And if you combine, if you had radar at several different points and you com uh, used them on the same object, you could combine this information to actually work out a three-dimensional uh, pattern of motion of, of the object. So, so that's how radar works. Okay, so now that we've covered some of the basics about sound and frequency and harmonics and so on, it's time to talk a bit about music. Now, caveat here is I am not a musician myself, and so everything that I'm going to present here is purely sort of theoretical, particularly when we talk about some of the different aspects of music. There are not always clear and concise definitions of these things, and so some musicians might use the words a little bit differently to how I'm going to use them, but I'm presenting them as, uh, as far as I could discern their meaning uh, through my research, so that's how it's going to be, basically. So that's my little caveat. First of all, what is music? So you could probably spend an entire podcast episode trying to define music, so I'm not going to do that. I'm, go I'm simply going to define music as a series of periodic sounds and silences, that's very important, sounds and silences, that is pleasing to the ear, or that is nice to hear. Musicologist uh, Jean-Jacques Nathiers, I've probably mispronounced that, says, I won't read the full quote, but basically th there's no real distinction between music and noise. Something that's perceived as merely noise in one culture may well and can easily be perceived as music in another one. There's no real difference between music and noise, basically. It's it's a cultural thing, and maybe part biological as well, in terms of the you know what humans can hear and tend to find pleasing cross-culturally. So, there's no hard and fast definition of what music is, it's just patterns of sounds and silence that we like to listen to, basically, in, in a given culture. Now, what are the different aspects of music? Music is a very complex phenomenon, and it has many different properties. I'm going to talk about some of them here. If you're not terribly well acquainted with music, then you would have almost certainly heard all of these before, but maybe not really understood exactly what they mean. If you are acquainted with music, you may you may agree with some of my definitions. You may think that some of them are slightly different to how you use the terms. Again, that's fine because pretty much all of these terms, pretty much none of these terms, have precise, well-defined definitions. But nonetheless, I'll give it a go. So, specifically, the aspects of music that I'm going to be talking about are tempo, melody, dynamics, pitch, harmony, rhythm and style. There are some other ones too, but these are some of the main ones, and some of the more fundamental ones. And variations in all of these different aspects of music is what give different pieces of music their their own unique sounds, qualities, and uh, properties, etc. So, start with the tempo. The tempo is a relatively easy one. This is the speed or the pace of a piece of music. It's often measured in terms of beats per minute. Uh, sorry, a metronome is a device used by musicians to keep a steady pace. So this is, you know, one of those pendulum things, well, sort of an inverse pendulum that, that ticks. I mean, that you can get different forms of them. There's digital ones as well. Some musicians don't like using metronomes, but many will. Uh, and the, the reason is because it's difficult to, to, without a metronome to keep a steady, consistent pace. There's a tendency to speed up or slow down in various parts. There are many words that are used to in music to describe tempo. Many of them are Italian in origin. So, for example, accelerando means a piece that's slowly accelerating, slowly increasing in tempo. Allegro means a piece that's quick and lively. And there's, you know, other words for slow pieces and for fast pieces and for decelerating and, and all sorts of for sudden changes in, in tempo and other things like that. But basically, tempo is just the pace or speed at which notes or beats are played. So, the next one, dynamics. Dynamics generally refers to the volume of a note, and also how the, the volume and emphasis of notes changes over the, courses of a, over the course of a piece. There's slightly different definitions, but it's basically to do with volume, loudness, and emphasis. Traditionally, music is marked with either a P for piano, meaning soft, again, this is, these are Italian words, or F for forte, meaning loud. 
You can also have two Fs, which means even louder, or two Ps, meaning even softer. And again, there are many other combinations and variations of that. There are other terms like crescendo, which means uh, becoming louder over time, or pianoforte, which means soft, and then an immediately strong, much louder note. Yes, okay, so that's dynamics, and next is pitch. Pitch is the frequency of the sound, with high frequencies and low frequencies, again, perceived differently by the human ear. It's important to understand that pitch is different to frequency. Well, I've sort of just said that the same thing. Frequency is, is really a physics term referring to, you know, the number of oscillations you have per period of time. That's measured in hertz. And we can quantify musical pitch in terms of frequency. But pitch as a musical term is really a psychological phenomenon. We, humans perceive different frequencies as having different pitch, but not in a, not in a completely consistent or uh, in, in a simple way. So it's not necessarily the case that one frequency corresponds to one pitch. People will differ in terms of how they perceive these things, and uh, environments and circumstances and so on will, will differ as well. So pitch refers to more the musical subjective aspect, whereas frequency is more the just purely physical phenomenon. Of course, without variations in frequency, you can't really have variations in pitch, but there's just not a clear, precise one-to-one -one mapping between the two. Pitch is often denoted in music by a combination of letters and numbers, so, you know, A4 and G9 and things like that. Well, G9 will be very high note, but anyway, yeah, so these numbers and letter combinations, there's different uh, there's different traditions for this, but they refer basically to different pitches, to different frequencies of sound. You might have also heard of sharp and flat notes. A sharp note is played slightly higher, uh, slightly higher pitch than, than its denoted letter and number combination would indicate, and a flat is slightly lower. So it just means sort of tweaking it up or down a little bit in terms of frequency. So, so these first three components of music, tempo, speed, dynamics, volume, and pitch, frequency, are relatively easy to understand because they all correspond to noticeably different components of music. Specifically, if we link it back to the physics, pitch corresponds to frequency, more or less, dynamics, corresponds to intensity of, of the vibration, more or less, and tempo refers to the speed at which w waves are, are travelling, more or less. Well, it's not quite right, because tempo also sort of more refers to the, the speed at which notes are played, but you, you can kind of make analogies there with, with the basic physics. But now we get into more complicated aspects of music, which are a bit hard to link directly back to the physics, and also harder to pin down as precisely. Now, so one is harmony. Harmony is a, the combination of and relationship between two or more chords that are played simultaneously. Now, when we say chord, what we mean is a sequence of notes or tones, basically. Now, harmony is often described, or at least sometimes described, as the vertical aspect of music. If you think about traditional Western music notation, where you have those uh, the, the horizontal lines and you put the notes at different locations on the, depending on their pitch. When we say the vertical aspect of music, we mean you can have two notes at the same horizontal position along your bar of music that are supposed to be played, you know, they're so at, sorry, at two notes at the same horizontal position, but at different vertical positions, corresponding to different pitches. Now, the fact that they're at the same horizontal position indicates that they should be played at basically the same time. But the fact they're at different vertical positions indicates that they have a, a dip, they will have a different pitch. So you might have an A and a C or something like that. Th these would be referred to as different chords. And so you might have different sequences of notes in one chord, say at a higher frequency or higher pitch, and Another, another chord being played simultaneously at a lower pitch. The harmony refers to the relationship between these two chords as they're played simultaneously. So you can have chords that are in harmony or so that have uh, similar melodies, for example, which we'll get to, or that sort of complement each other, or you could have disharmonious combinations of, of chords, which of course could be used deliberately to, to create a feeling of, of discordance in the music, for instance. 
So basically harmony, the vertical aspect of music, how different, how chords of different pitches relate to each other as they're played over time. Melody is sometimes called the horizontal aspect of music, and it refers to a succession of notes, including their pitch and to some extent their rhythm, as they're played over time. So, you know, so a melody is basically a succession of a small number of notes that is heard as a sort of a unit. So you might have, that's a very simple melody of, of three notes increasing in succession in their pitch. Often a, a given mel- a given melody is used repeatedly throughout a, a piece of music, or you, you'll have different melodies combined in different ways. So it's referred to as the horizontal aspect of, of music because it describes how notes relate to each other over time. So how you have one note that's maybe a lower frequency, and then you have a, a, a sorry a lower pitch, and then a middle pitch, and then a high pitch note in, in a sequence like that. And you see how that's different to harmony, where that talks about this, how, how different notes of different pitches are played at the same time, rather than over time. Melody also incorporates elements of rhythm and of tempo as well, so the speed at which you play these notes, for example. So it's a little bit hard to define it precisely, which is why I made the caveat earlier. The, the last, well, the second last uh, aspect of music that I want to talk about is is rhythm. This was the one I found the most difficult to define. I mean, it, it's something to do with the succession of notes over time. That, that's, the, that's the best I could do in terms of a definition. You'll get different definitions elsewhere. I find it I found it very difficult to distinguish the difference between harmony, uh, particularly between melody and tempo and rhythm. That they all seem to that they all seem to overlap a very large amount. Rhythm does seem to be a more general concept than melody. So melody is just a specific generally refers to a specific sequence of notes. Rhythm is more the overall pace and form of a piece of music. So for example, even the simplest piece of mu- music like a simple drum beat has a rhythm, but it doesn't necessarily have to have a melody. So if I have a drum beat that's just going, you know, that's a rhythm, a very simple rhythm. There's no melody there because I'm not changing the pitch over time, nor is there any harmony because I don't have, I've only got one chord in that instance. And, well, it has tempo, but there's nothing terribly much interesting to say about the tempo because it's just constant. So so rhythms are sort of a more basic concept, but also more uh, overarching. It it has something to do with the melody and the tempo and the beat, and they all sort of mix together. Hard to define. The last one uh, aspect of music that I want to talk about is style, and this is the most general. It really I- incorporates all aspects that we've talked about so far, so pitch, dynamics, harmony, tempo, etc., as well as, as, as timbre, which we'll get to in a moment. And the style is what distinguishes individual composers or groups, periods, genres of music, etc. They all have different ways of combining melody and harmony and pitch and dynamics and so on in, in different combinations and in different ways, producing a different style of music. A word that I've used a couple of times is, is timbre. It's spelled T-I-M-B-R-E. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it exactly correctly. This is a bit of a tricky one because it sort of overlaps with a number of aspects of music that we've already discussed, but it's also a bit different. So specifically what timbre refers to is the quality of sound that different instruments will produce. Uh, it's also sometimes referred to as uh, tone color because it sort of indicates a, it's it's a quality of the music. It's not its pitch, it's not its tempo, it's not even the rhythm. It's just the quality of the sound. So it will overlap to some extent with, with some of the other aspects we've talked about before, but it is a little bit different. Specifically, the reason different instruments and maybe different bands and so on will have different timbre is because they have different combinations of harmonic frequencies. So remember, if you play... So, so for example, let, let's consider playing, I don't know, a, a C 
a middle C note on a piano versus on a guitar, if they're properly tuned and with a few other caveats, the fundamental frequency of both of those notes is the same. They're, they're vibrating at the same frequency of however many hertz on both those instruments. However, this, the quality of the sound will be quite different. You'll be able to tell if it's being played by a piano or a guitar or by something else. The reason you can tell, I mean, you know, again, there might be differences in tempo and, and melody and so on, but even ignoring those, if you just play a single note, so basically you don't have any of these other confounding factors, you can still tell whether it's a piano or a guitar. The reason is because you have different combinations of harmonic frequencies that will occur when you pluck a guitar string versus when you press a piano key. And these different combinations of harmonics, so this is higher frequencies, produce different overall patterns of sound, which you perceive to be different. You know, we hear differently. So the fundamental frequency is the same, but the harmonics that are sitting on top of that are different. And what you hear is the combination of all of those frequencies added together. So the, the overall pattern of sound, the quality of the sound will be different, even if the frequency is the same. So that's how different instruments, that's why different instruments, and also even just the exact design of the instrument, will produce slightly different qualities of sound, because they're producing different combinations of harmonic frequencies. Okay, so those are the main aspects of music. There's another thing that I want to talk about, which is that of beats. People talk about beats a lot, but I don't think many people actually understand what they are. So, I mean, in, in the most basic sense, a beat is just sort of a regular sequence, uh, a regular sequence of notes in a piece of music. And so you generally measure the tempo by how rapidly the beat progresses. But, but it's, there's also a more specific definition of beats, which is a periodic variation in sound volume caused by variations in the amplitude of different sound waves. So it turns out, if you have a sound that is a mix of different frequencies, and you add those together, what happens is that there will be periods where you get constructive interference of those uh, frequency waves, and therefore very loud sounds, and there'll be other periods where you have destructive interference of those different frequencies, and therefore you get much quieter sounds. And this variation in volume over time is referred to as the beat. So technically speaking, if you just have a tuning fork which produces a single frequency, you couldn't you, you couldn't have a beat because it's only producing one frequency. To have a beat in this technical sense, you need to have more than one frequency. And of course, in any real instrument, you will, because you rem remember, according to the timbre of the instrument, you'll get different patterns of harmonics adding up to produce different waves. That Those differences in frequencies can give you beats. But in the specific sense, beats only are produced by differences in frequency. And the particularly the beat frequency will be equal to the difference in the frequency of the two waves. So if I have a 50 hertz and 100 hertz frequencies, my beat frequency will be 50 hertz there. That's the difference between the two frequencies. And so, so if you have two sounds of a very similar frequency, the difference between those frequencies is small. So maybe I have a 79 hertz and an 80 hertz sounds. The difference in those is 1 hertz. 1 hertz is a very low frequency, and so that, that will be a very slow beat. Similarly, if I have very different frequencies, then I'll have a much higher, a larger difference in those frequencies, and therefore a much faster beat. Okay, so now in the final section of the podcast, I want to talk about some of the main types of musical instruments and just sort of compare how they work. There are enormous numbers of ways of categorizing musical instruments. The one that I'm going to use is just a simple way that they're generally categorized in a classical Western musical orchestra. And this is generally, they're generally split up into the string instruments, the woodwind instruments, percussion, brass instruments, and keyboard instruments. So we'll start with string instruments. As I, as you remember, I said earlier in the episode, many musical instruments and sounds in general are produced by vibrating strings, and so a classic example of this are string instruments. Examples of string instruments include harps, guitars, banjos, violins, cellos, double bass, etc. 
Now, the strings itself are pretty, uh, the strings themselves are quite small, therefore they move very little air, and as a result you wouldn't be able to hear them very easily or at all, uh, unaided. And so to overcome this, most string instruments are mounted onto a larger body, often made of wood or another material, and the musical vibrations produced by the strings are transmitted to this wooden or to, to this body, and, theref- and therefore the body itself begins to vibrate some air, thereby amplifying the sound of the string. And so the exact shape and design and also even materials of the body of, of the instruments will influence how the vibrational patterns are, are produced. So this will affect the loudness, the harmonic frequencies th- that are produced, and, and so on. So this is why even fairly similar instruments, like, say, compare a guitar to a banjo or, or a violin, produced... You, Produce, uh, produced using a very similar basic idea, you know, you attach a vibrating string to a, a wooden instrument, to, to a wooden body, can still produce very different sounds because the vibrations are being transmitted in different ways and you have different harmonic frequencies and such. String instruments are played by vibrating the strings, as I said before, and also the musician, in order to play different notes, or different notes of different pitches, will need to alter the length of the strings. Now, they can't do that by you know manually changing the the string length or changing the string's tension while they're playing so instead what they do is they move their fingers around and manually alter the effective length of the string so that's what a guitarist is doing when they're moving their fingers around they're just changing the length of the strings of the guitar thereby changing the frequency of the fundamental frequencies of the sounds that they play and, and of course there's going to be more complexities to it than that but that's the basic idea of what they're actually doing when you tune, uh, say, a guitar, what you're actually doing is, you know, turning those knobs on a guitar, that's actually varying this, the tension of the string. And that also will change its, its pitch. So remember, pitch is determined by the, the tension of the string, the mass of the string, and also the length of the string. A guitarist or, uh, other string player can't change the tension of the string while they're playing the instrument. So instead, while they're playing, that they, they move their, their fingers around, and they, so they finger the strings. But to, to tune it in between performances, that, that's why they use those knobs to alter the tension in the strings. An electric guitar, so, so far I've been describing an acoustic guitar, which, again, you vibrate the strings, which vibrates the body of the guitar, and that vibrates the air around it, and we hear that as sound. Electric guitars are different. What they actually do is convert the string vibrations into an electric signal, which is then amplified and played through speakers. So this is why, if you look at an electric guitar, it doesn't have to have sort of the, the hole in the center and the, the, the hollow body that surrounds the strings, like generally an acoustic guitar will. So electric guitars can be flatter and smaller because they don't need to have the vibrating body that an acoustic guitar has to, because the, the guitar itself doesn't actually make the sound. What you're hearing is not the strings themselves vibrating, or even the guitar itself. What you're really hearing comes from the speakers, as amplified electronically. So that's how an electric guitar differs from an acoustic guitar. Oh, also, one other point about string instruments. So there's, there's different... They're all produced by strings that vibrate, but you can vibrate the strings in different ways. So one way you can vibrate a string is just to pluck it. This is what you do in a guitar or a banjo. You can also bow the string, which is what is done in a violin or a viola, and those produce very different sounds. Another way of producing a sound via a string is to strike it, and this is what we do on a keyboard, particularly, for example, a piano. So pianos actually are, in a sense, string instruments, although they're categorized under the keyboard instruments in the in the categorization that I'm giving, because they use a keyboard, but fundamentally they produce their sound using strings, just like a guitar does. Strings are obviously longer, and also they tend to be made of metal in a piano, so they generally have metal strings, and the way that you cause them to vibrate is you press down a key, which which basically moves various internal mechanisms, ultimately cause, ultimately striking 
literally hitting the metal strings and causing them to vibrate. As the key is, for as long as the key is uh, depressed, the vibration continues. As soon as the key is released, the string's vibration will come to a halt because basically there's a, um, a dampener which is placed on the string causing it to, to stop vibrating. Different keys are attached to strings of different lengths and masses and therefore will produce different notes. So this is similar to the concept of the guitar where you have strings of different masses and, and different perhaps different tensions and so on and also changing the length of the strings changes the, the pitch. Same thing with the piano. Pianos also have pedals which uh, serve different functions for example, one of the pedals called the sustain pedal will cause all all of the strings to keep vibrating even after you remove your finger. So, so this can be used if you want to play sort of lots of notes vibrating at the same time and you, you only have a certain number of fingers. You can depress this pedal and all notes that you press will, will continue to vibrate uh, until you, you uh, raise the pedal. As opposed to, as I said, normally when it, the, the notes will only sound when you have your key, your finger depressed on the key. So that's how broadly how a piano works, and that's, that's in the keyboard instrument section of our orchestra that we're imagining here. So we've done string instruments and keyboard instruments. Let's now look at woodwind instruments. Woodwind instruments are, well, wind instruments in general, which include, well, I would include woodwind and brass instruments. Some others would categorize them differently. But the reason I put those together is because wood, woodwind instruments and brass instruments both are essentially just vibrating containers of air. I mean, you can say that that's basically what any instrument is. Obviously they have to vibrate the air, but the difference between string and keyboard instruments and woodwind and brass instruments is that woodwind and brass instruments don't have strings. I mean, I'm sure there's some exceptions that have weak combinations, but, but you know, traditionally, the, uh, woodwind and brass instruments don't have strings. They just have the vibrating columns of air. So basically, they're just a bunch of pipes and other containers uh, that air vibrates through. One difference between wood, between string and wind instruments is that in a string, generally the in string instruments, generally the, the string is confined at both ends, and so you have a node at both ends. Whereas in wind instruments, generally there's one closed end and one open end. Not always, but often that's the case. And so remember I said earlier that, that, you, that these different combinations of nodes and antinodes will give you different harmonic frequencies, get different sets of harmonics. And so that's one reason why wind instruments and string instruments will sound differently, because they have different harmonic frequencies. There are, of course, many other reasons. The instruments are differently shaped and they're made of different materials, and so the, the timbre and patterns of harmonics and other things will, will be different. Now, uh, remember I said that, it, say, when you're playing a guitar, the way that you change pitch is by moving, either playing a, di playing a different str string or just changing the length of the string using your fingers. In a woodwind instrument, the way that you change pitch is by altering the length, what well, the effective length of the tubes, by, for example, opening or closing holes uh, along along the tube, and this is what you see, for example, a flute player or a clarinet player doing when they're moving their fingers around, they're just opening and closing those holes, which are changing the relative le the lengths of the different tubes in the instrument, thereby producing different pitches. Examples of woodwind instruments include flutes, oboes, clarinets, bassoon, and the saxophone. Now, an interesting note on the saxophone, I certainly used to think of that as a brass instrument, and maybe you do as well. Saxophones do tend to, well, can be made of brass. Definitely, they, they're generally made of metal, whereas the other wind instruments, woodwind instruments are generally made of wood. But woodwind instruments don't actually have to be made of wood. What actually defines the difference between a woodwind instrument and a brass instrument is not what the instrument is made of, it's on how it produces its sound. So, woodwind instruments use reeds or thin strips of wood to vibrate inside their columns. Whereas brass instruments are just purely containers for vibrating air, so they don't have those wooden strips. So there's a slightly different mechanism of producing sound in the woodwind versus brass instruments. Saxophones 
produce sound via the traditional mechanism of the woodwind instruments. That's why they're classified as a woodwind instrument, or at least a wind instrument. Brass instruments include trumpets, trombones, French horn, and the tuba. Again, in brass, brass instruments are similar in that you play different notes by changing the length of the tubing, although th this can be done in a different way. So, for example, trombone, in the famous case where you have the... Um, the sliding component, you're, you're actually, when you slide that outwards and inwards, you're directly changing the length of the piping, not by opening or closing a hole or something like that, but you're actually changing the length of the piping. So that, that's, again, going to change the, the, the fundamental frequency that you're playing and therefore the, the frequency that is heard. So that's brass and woodwind instruments. That leaves us with the final category, percussion instruments. So everyone knows percussion instruments. These include things like drums and cymbals. These are actually, although sort of they look simpler... You know, a drum doesn't look as complex an instrument as a piano or a flute or something like that. But actually, in terms of the physics of what's going on, they're much more complicated. Because it turns out that the resonant frequencies on the surface of, of say, a drum do not have to be whole number multiples of the fundamental frequencies. So that completely contradicts what I said before when I was talking about harmonics. But, but the, the harmonics that I was talking about definitely applies to strings and to windpipes. So that's basically all the types of instruments we've talked about except percussion instruments. In percussion instruments, you can have nodes and antinodes occurring in a wide variety of places on the surface of the instrument, producing a very complicated pattern. And so the precise sound that you get when playing, say, a drum will depend not only on how hard you strike it, but also precisely where you strike it. The basic definition or distinction of percussion instruments that uh, differentiates them from, say, woodwind or keyboard instruments is, is, is how they produce sound. They produce uh, percussion instruments all produce sound as a result of some surface being struck by by something it could be, it could just be the naked hand or it could be some sort of beater or you know a drumstick or something like that for so obviously for example, a drum is a percussion instrument, but so is a xylophone for example because you're striking wooden plates and so in that sense, a piano is actually kind of a percussion instrument, or it has a sort of quasi-claim to being a percussion instrument, because, as you remember, it works by striking strings uh, using hammers, and so in that sense it's percussion, but usually because it's got, it has strings, it's, it's classified as in its own category. So piano's an actually tricky one to, to classify. Anyway, that's all of the different types of musical instruments that I wanted to discuss and their properties, and that's all we have for this episode. Hopefully you enjoyed it. If so, please jump on to iTunes and give the podcast a favorable review that uh, really helps to improve the visibility of the podcast and to attract new listeners. You can also go onto Facebook, just search for the Science of Everything podcast and give our page a like. You'll also find their diagrams and images that I post up uh, helping to explain some of the concepts of the episodes. If you have any suggestions or feedback or criticisms or anything like that, send me an email. My address is fods12 at gmail.com. That's F-O-D-S-1-2 at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. Music.